Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So we had an assignment, but you you didn't you didn't do your homework, and I think what you should do is use an excuse that you were hungover. Because the, the real excuse is really boring. So, I mean, it would be much more literary for you to say, well, I'm wicked hungover and I didn't do the assignment. Well, either I was hungover or my cat ate my homework, one or the other. Well, see, I like the, I like the hungover. Okay, does, I was hungover. I was, yeah. I was channeling Ernest Hemingway <laughs> over the weekend, and I had a bit too much of, what did he drink? He was a rum drinker. I hate rum, but whatever. Oh, okay. I, I was doing the Nick and Nora Charles thing, drinking martinis. Ah, yes, yes. Anyway, we did have an assignment, and you did your homework, so we're going to talk about it. We were going to both read parts of a book, and only one of us read parts of a book, but it's okay because it's the idea of the book that we want to talk about. Yeah, it's David Hepworth's Uncommon People, which came out two or three years ago. I really should be, I should know this, but it's called Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rock Stars. David Hepworth is a music journalist. He's been writing, you know, uh, in British music magazines. He's hosted radio programs, TV programs. He's He's bigger in England than he is in the United States, but I've known who he is. I used to read his stuff, and he's still writes the in that 70s rock journalist style which is so tasty you know they make all of these yeah. uh they can they can bring in anything from the culture and it ju they just make it fit and uh the free association and the stream of consciousness it just i just love that kind of writing and it's nice that these are a bunch of essays about the rise and fall of the rock stars it goes chronologically uh, and lists a, a bunch of famous rock people, but really they're just springboards to talk about a particular subject about the culture and about the culture of, of rock and roll stardom. Yeah, just to go back to the style of writing, music writing these days is so inoffensive. It doesn't want to offend anyone. It's trying to be nice to everyone. I read a, a review of a book in The Guardian this morning. I won't link to it, but it was five essays by someone who was apparently a well-known American literary critic and who is a, quote, very online person and who was writing about things. And the review was so scathing, but so well-written scathing, right? It's like tearing it down with class. And you don't see that very often. Most, most, a lot of book reviews are written by other authors, right? So, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, whatever, they'll get a mystery writer to review a mystery. Even if the reviewer is not a friend of the author, they might want to become a friend of the author, so they don't want to say anything negative. So there's just so much hedging going on in criticism. And it is nice to see that kind of, you know, we don't give a damn criticism. The thing about this, of course, is that it's historical. So he's going back and looking at things. So it's not exactly like he's reporting on the, on the contemporaneous culture, but he was there for a lot of it. Um, he's been around since the sixties. He's certainly, you could tell from where he started, he the, the first few essays are, are about people from the fifties. And I just avoided that. I don't, I don't really care about music in the fifties. Sure. Give Chuck Berry his due, give Jerry Lee Lewis his due, give those people their due. But I really don't listen to any of that. It wasn't until, the, you know, the early sixties that I was interested in. 
let me just tell you about the first article I read. He chose the year 1963, Ian Stewart. Now, if you don't know who Ian Stewart is, he certainly sounds like a British musician, doesn't he? With a name like Ian Stewart. I mean, I get him confused with Rod Stewart, Ian McLaughlin, all of these people. <laughs> Ian Stewart is the famous sixth Rolling Stone. And he was actually more formative in, in building the Rolling Stones than I, I was aware of. Uh, he's the guy that suggested to them that they get Charlie Watts as a drummer. He's the one that suggested that they stop practicing in their mom's front room and rent some real rehearsal space. Now, Ian was the piano player, and he was older than the guitar playing guys. He already had a job. He was already working nine to five. Meanwhile, Mick and Keith and Brian, they're all in school. And he, Ian Stewart was the adult in the room. So he's the one that kind of was the center of the band. But when they signed with Decca, who was, as, as, as David points out, who was very anxious to find their Beatles because they, they were the ones that famously turned the Beatles down. So they were very anxious in signing somebody that could compete with the Beatles they signed the six Rolling Stones, but their manager, Andrew Luke Oldham, who had already served some time with Brian Epstein as a, as a PR guy and who said, I'm going to get my own band. He's the one that decided that Ian Stewart should not be in the band. And the reason is, if you see a picture of them, you'll get it. You see the five Rolling Stones and they kind of look cute and sexy. You know, they have that cute, I'm dangerous look. Well, Ian Stewart looks like Herman Munster. He just doesn't fit in with the rest of the guys. It just doesn't work. And when you're trying to compete against the Beatles, you need a look. You need to have a cohesive look. Ian Stewart did not have it. So they, as Hepworth says, demoted him to tour manager. And that's what he did with the Rolling Stones for the rest of his life. Although he did record with them many times, he's credited. You'll see his name in, in, in Rolling Stones albums, Piano, Ian Stewart. Um, and he performed live with them, too. Yeah, he's on the Get Your Yes, Yes out album. And he only played... Get Your Yes, Yes? <laughs> yeah, that's the joke. Get Your Yes, Yes, Get Your Yes, Yes. Get okay. Your Yes, Yes out of my door. He's the one that... He, he only played on the Chuck Berry numbers. In fact, I think I told you this story. He hated Bob Dylan. The only song by Bob Dylan he liked was watching the river flow because it had boogie woogie piano in it. It had that Leon Russell piano in it. Um, he was, a, he was a weird guy, <laughs> but they loved having him around and he took care of them as the sixth Rolling Stone as tour manager, really fascinating story. But the thing I liked about it is that he was fine with not being the rock star. He was absolutely cool with it. And yet he, he lived in that whole universe, but he Never got the adulation, never got a lot of credit, but he was just fine with that. I, I just think that's a great story about Ian Stewart. I wish I had known him. <laughs> He's the kind of guy that I wish I would knew that guy. So a few interesting anecdotes from Wikipedia. He was the first person who answered Brian Jones's advertisement in Jazz News in May 1962, seeking musicians to form a rhythm and blues group. He worked for Imperial Chemical Industries, and none of the other band's members had a telephone, so his desk at ICI, he said, was the headquarters of the Stones organization. His number was advertised in Jazz News, and I handled the Stones' bookings at work. 
So he was integral. And here's the, he, yeah, he was booking them. He was yeah. he was the guy that was booking them. Yeah. So here's one thing that I didn't know. Ian Rankin, who was a Scottish crime writer, created a character named John Rebus, who's a detective, and he took some of his inspiration for the unruly inspector from the sixth stone, Ian Stewart. Huh. Interesting. Yep. He's a very interesting character. And like I said, he's not he's not Mick Jagger or Keith Richards, the way we think of them. But he was there for all. He died in 1985, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not exactly – some weird circumstance. Someone said he died in the waiting room. So it was something abrupt and immediate. I don't know what it was all about. Now, you say he looks like Herman Munster. I think he looks like – who's that late-night television guy with the big chin? Oh, Jay Leno. Jay Leno. That's who he looks well, like. Well, yeah, I suppose – I mean, his. he looks like the elephant man, really. I mean, he just looks <laughs> terrible. He's he's got this. He just doesn't fit in. He just doesn't work with the other guys. And you know he's he was tall too. And I've seen pictures of him sitting at the piano, and he just looks his posture is bad at the piano. Yeah. It's just yeah. it's just uh, he was wrong. Yeah. And and Oldham was right. You know, keeping him out of the picture uh, was 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 good for the Stones. Well, you know, he maybe he didn't. Maybe he actually did better. Not yeah, being right. A he member did. of the band because. Right. You see what happened to all of them, and I, you know they're lucky that they've survived and things yeah. like that. So that is ironic that they are the ones that survived, and he was the one that catapulted out early. Okay, Ian Stewart, who's next? Well, the next one I read was um, now. Don't forget these were supposed to intersperse with the ones you would have picked, so I didn't. I didn't pick anything right. that you would have picked. I went to 1969, and the band that's represented there is Black Sabbath. I don't know a lot about Black Sabbath. I know they're I know they're a local band. They're from Birmingham. Okay, that's good enough. And apparently, these guys um, before they were Black Sabbath, they called themselves Earth, which sort of signified their social status. Dirt. They were dust. <laughs> they were you know this. These, they were yobs, right? And they were they were trying to make money being a band. Now I don't know what kind of music Earth played. I imagine it was probably a combination of R and B and, and things like that. And, and they were playing at the, I, I think they played uh, uh, at the cavern or someplace like that in Germany. They were, you know, they were getting regular, they were getting a lot of regular jobs as earth. But um, the story goes that they were packing up their gear one day and they noticed at a movie, local movie theater, an Italian horror movie was playing called black Sabbath. And they thought that was a cool that was a cool word, you know, it was a scary movie. And they decided to write a song that was like a horror movie that would scare the audience, not make them feel good. Like they weren't going to be like do Supremes music or the Temptations or, or things like that, or the Beatles. They were going to do blacks. They were going to write this black Sabbath song, which they did. I guess they were pretty proud of themselves. In fact, they liked the song so much, they decided to call themselves Black Sabbath. That's how much they liked the song. And they said, this is an interesting idea. We should write more songs that are scary movies rather than, you know, upbeat pop songs that people want to dance to. When you went to a, 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 black, con a, a black Sabbath show, you could just kind of stood there and like, you know, kind of swayed to the music. You didn't dance to it. It was, you know, headbanger music. They didn't call it that then. But that's essentially what, what what they were creating, and so they finally put out put out an album. They call the album Black Sabbath, and they've invented this sort of 
this they've invented heavy metal and it's an interesting time to make this kind of music because 1969 was a very transitional time right we had woodstock then we had altamont we had the manson murders we had this there was something going on, and we've talked about this many, many times. And we also had prog rock coming in, and so you were getting the you were getting the forkings with the prog rock and the folk rock and the singer songwriter stuff. Exactly, I think that's what they saw as an opportunity for them to you know find a niche, and and that's what they did. But the interesting the, uh, the interesting part to me was that they sort of are the ones that said we're not going to be you know flower children anymore. This we're going to go the other direction. And uh, it's a, I never thought of them of that music as like horror movies before, because they're well consumed, and the fact that you're going to make a musical genre that uses fear and scaring. I mean, think about how many teenage boys that appeals to. If I could only be stronger than I am, if I only could control things like by, like the devil, make a deal with the devil, I could eliminate all of my enemies and. That sort of thing. They just, they just found it and they tapped into it. I just, that sort of thing didn't really happen before. They, he mentioned "Screaming Jay Hawkins," which I'm sure is a song that terrified a lot of people at the time. Uh, I put but a spell on you. It wasn't the same image. It's not it the was, same. It was New Orleans type music. But "Screaming Jay Hawkins," I put a spell on you, scared a lot of white people. That's a scary song if you just th- take it for at face yeah. value. If you don't understand yeah. where it's coming from, and. You know, so people were at that level of fear. Black Sabbath wanted to kick it up and, you know, make it as a, a, a consumable uh, thing for an audience to enjoy. So I guess they did invent heavy metal, at least the image of heavy metal, but there were bands playing music, not with the same type of lyrics, but the same type of music. Some early Jethro Tull, some early King Crimson. Mm-hmm. You go back a few years, you've got a lot of that floating around. Even some early Pink Floyd was pretty heavy. But they were really the first ones to get the whole, the accoutrements of heavy metal, weren't they? Yeah, I guess so. And it's really amazing to think of that musically, they're just a three-piece. Yeah. Which I always thought was kind of fascinating. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't have a keyboard player, you know, and then you've got bands like Deep Purple that are kind of a junked that, you know, a lot of people tried to jump onto that sort of feel um but couldn't do it without compromising their original sound who invented that hand sign that people hold up at concerts to say i'm at a heavy metal concert the uh those are like the devil's horns those are you know are they i thought they were like i don't know give me two beers please oh could be that too Sure. Yeah. Depends so, so interesting tidbit, and you know they're local, right? Birmingham is an hour from me. The Birmingham Royal Ballet recently performed Black Sabbath, the ballet. Wow! <laughs> so I guess you can dance and, to it. Yeah, it was some dancer who, since they were original heavy metal heroes who forged their unique sound in Birmingham, some dancer choreographed a kind of thing to the music, and I don't know, like. I just don't see Black Sabbath and the the devil's horns things and people dancing around in tutus with whatever they call those shoes. It doesn't it's 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 kinda not it's kinda not the direction that they wanted the music to be taken. They didn't want that sort of feel. I I think they would prefer just people standing and, and just kind of swaying 
You know, that would that would be enough dancing for them. Well, I do remember when the ballet was being produced, this was sometime last year, that uh, the BBC News introduced one of the members of Black Sabbath. I don't remember who it was. And they were like, oh, it's really cool. I, it wasn't Ozzy Osbourne that they spoke to. I don't know who's still alive. And it's, oh, it's really cool. I really like it and blah, 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 because I'm making money from it. So I'm going to say it's really cool. And I really like it. The Guardian gave it three stars saying, I don't know. Utterly unique and absolutely worth seeing, but throughout you can't help but want more. More power, more volume, more theater. Turn it up to 12, right? Oh, wow. They don't play loud music to ballet? I guess not, no. Uh, when when Iomi comes out, guitar raging in a one-off special appearance for the finale, the place explodes. It's the energy we've all been waiting for. So it must have been Tony Iomi who was interviewed, who was probably involved in the production. And it just seems, it just feels like aging British rock star who lives in a country manor and wants to have a ballet of his heavy metal hits. It's just so British. Or someone approaches him and says, we want to do this. We think we can mount it. We think we can make a little money. Yeah. And he goes, sure. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't his idea. I don't think he cares. No, no. But it's also, don't forget that they were very attached to Birmingham. Birmingham's had a couple of waves of music I think, was it Madness or the Specials or both of them came from Birmingham? It's Birmingham's not, it's the second largest city in the UK. It's not really well known for its music, but they did have Black Sabbath. They did have the sort of ska movement in the early 80s, and that's about it. So I think, you know, people, people in this country are attached to where they're from in a way that might not be the same in the States. Well, it's a little place, so, you know, it's important to, yeah. to yeah. manage your, to maintain your whereabouts. Uh, finally, I went to 1989 and Bonnie Raitt. I'm, I've always been a fan of Bonnie Raitt. But 1989, uh, I was, uh, you know, I walked away from this essay thinking that chunk of the 80s at the very end, from like 87 through 91, was the worst time for rock music ever. It was such sludge. MTV had turned every MTV had homogenized everything. So the new rock that was coming out in the eighties, and I know cause I was playing it, it John Mellencamp, Bruce Springsteen, U2, uh, Steve Winwood, Phil Collins, Eric Clapton, all of these guys were making music still, and we were still playing it. And it wasn't that great, but it was palatable. It wasn't, unlikable but it wasn't exactly innovative new bands i can i remember this there was a band from philadelphia called the hooters and they had a couple of hits on mtv and you know around the country and this was what new music was this pop stuff which i don't i didn't even like there was they were some kind of weird post new wave band i guess you could call it so anyway you got all these old people old people making music and a lot of them had been ravaged by being rock stars so many of them he points out eric clapton and ringo Starr, who were notorious alcoholics and drug abusers and um i didn't know ringo you know, was an alcoholic the, and drug abuser oh i did not know that ringo was notorious i remember that he he would drink he okay. was a drinker he was an alcoholic yeah really bad in the 80s and this this gluttonous idea that musicians had that they could do whatever they wanted, take all the pills they want, take all the alcohol, this upset, this, they were turning into fat middle-aged people by 1989. Yeah. Quite literally for Bonnie Raitt. 
Bonnie Raitt was putting on weight. She was alcohol uh, bound. She was uh, she did cocaine. One of the things that that these rock stars were finding out is that they would go on stage for two hours and then they'd be all revved up and they'd go out and party and do all this stuff. And who could stay up the latest and who could drink the guy under the table first? And this is the sort of things that these people did. And in 1989, Bonnie uh, Bonnie Raitt was being told that she looked pregnant, that she was like chunky. It's okay. It's not going to, it's not going to interfere with the way you play music. She said, that's it. Now she had also, been dropped by uh, her initial record company. She had put nine albums out with, I don't know, RCA or somebody, and she was dropped. So she was really concerned that if she didn't make a record that enabled her to make more records, her career was over. So she cleaned up. And the album that she put out in 1989, Nick of Time, won five Grammys that year. And that is essentially the album that, kicked off her second career. Her first career was as this rock folk blues person. But this is the album that kicked her into adult rock. This is the one that made her not a person of the 60s, not of the, of the blues revival. This was a person she turned into this 90s pop icon, um, which is, I think is amazing. And a lot of people did. Like I said, Eric Clapton, he, he got clean. Huge hits um, in in the late 80s. Steve Winwood, like I mentioned, all those people, they came back and they were making it. But there was nothing until uh, 92, I'll say, when Nirvana and Green Day and bands like that started kicking those guys to the curb. But a very interesting story about Bonnie Raitt, though, that she she decided she had to clean up. And this this represented this um, this middle age of of rock stars. You, when you get into your 40s, you got you got to start thinking about the future. And a lot of them decided that this excess has got to stop. Uh, success and excess, it's got to stop. You, they can't go hand in hand. And that's when a lot of them started calming down. But at the same time, they weren't as popular anymore either because something else was coming that would wipe them out of the way. They had to find their own little radio format, yeah. adult rock, yeah. adult alternative adult everything well the, the whole rock star image really the hard partying rock star image that's something that dates from the 70s it's led zeppelin famous for their parties with underage girls joe walsh famous for trashing hotel rooms i don't think with this stones did a bit of hotel room trashing early on if they didn't they certainly put out pr that said they did yeah yeah and I guess that just the image of the rock star, and that's the whole point of this book, is the image of the rock star. What is the rock star? And the image of the rock star was, we're cute, the Beatles. We're bad boys, the Rolling Stones. We're the Devil's Spawn, Black Sabbath, and all these different bands. Until, and, and you look at the Wikipedia page with Bonnie Raitt, and here she is with Jackson Brown in 1997 at a press conference opposing the proposed Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository. So a lot of them went into these social things in order to have something to fulfill them when they're off the stage, maybe? Perhaps, perhaps, sure. It could be. The number of Bob Geldof, I mean, how did some guy who had this little band, the Boomtown Rats, become so big? Partly because of his, what was that song? We Are the World? That was him? Yeah. 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 
There is and Live Aid. He he produced Live Aid. There is a documentary about We Are the World. I think on Netflix or something. There's even a musical in London about it. It's like Bob Geldof has been getting free dinners for for forty years over this thing, but it's uh, that sort of engagement, political engagement, has helped sustain a lot of these musicians who maybe felt the emptiness of, uh, you know, the, the the Jackson Brown song, the loadout, right? Then he sings about the 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 show's over and the the road crew's taking the stuff away and it's lonely out here and that's what it was it was the loneliness after the excitement of the show so they had to find something a lot of them did turn to drugs and alcohol i guess a lot of them probably still do drugs and alcohol particularly among newer musicians it's quite the thing apparently cocaine and other things like that and i guess as you say they get to their 40s and they realize do they want a career and if so then they've got to do something. Yeah, they've got to make a drastic change. And that's when it was happening. That's an interesting time uh, that he pegged out, that late 80s period. Because like I said, the music was sludge, and it was there was nothing happening. It seemed like it seemed like bands were just on autopilot, and, and the record companies were just cranking this stuff out because that's what people bought, and it all worked in the pipeline, and the, the, the infrastructure had been set up in such a way that this is what, this is the music that we had. Yeah, but remember what's going on at the same time. MTV has been established, right? MTV started in 82, but I, I they think might it was a not couple even, years. MTV might not have even been playing music by the time 89 rolled around. They By then, they were probably adding like those those other shows that they were doing. What else changed in the music industry around that time? That little plastic disc, the CD. Because you had, you had two things going on. You had people buying CDs of vinyl records that they already owned. Lots of money going to the pockets of the people in the record companies. And you had artists trying to fill CDs, which could take, well, 75, 74 minutes was the, the maximum in the early days. But most of them were, you know, 60-minute albums weren't uncommon. You had artists trying to fill up CDs with music. And it's not the same as two sides of a vinyl LP. That's right. Well, that changed a lot, for sure. That changed a lot. I mean, we've talked about that. And, and I think the CD itself drove music sales in general. More people were buying music because the CD, you didn't have to faff around to put it on the thing and clean it off and stick the needle without scraping it. You, you could put it in your car. Maybe by 1989, you couldn't put it in your car yet. I don't know if they had CD players in cars, but it you was- You could certainly carry them with you. You could carry them with you. You had portable CD players, but it was so easy to pop a CD into something and play it. You didn't have to flip it over in the middle. And sales of music went up in general, in part because of the CD. So Right. They, and you know, that's the interesting beginning of, of the catalog resale Yeah, that, that we're still experiencing now. I mean, didn't I just see a, a Frank Zappa album that's being lauded because of its- Dolby Atmos remix by Dweezil. Um, <laughs> that's really interesting. It's, yeah. oh, celebrity producers do, doing Atmos. Just, there's a market for that. I'm yeah. sure there is. Yeah. So we're not even out of that yet. Okay. Now, I promise that for our next episode, I will choose three musicians from this book, and we will talk about my picks. And I'm sorry that I had things to do, and my cats ate my homework. And you got to do something about that drinking problem. I know. I know, but you know Hemingway. It's it's he's an inspiration. Works for him. Yep. Shall we do next track picks? Please do. I don't know why Apple Music recommended to me the new recording by Sigiswald Kaiken. You know Sigiswald Kaiken? He was an early 
heavy metal violinist. No, Sigismund Kaiken is a Belgian violinist conductor. He's one of the leading proponents of early music performance practice, along with Gustav Leonhardt and some other musicians up in the Benelux countries. He was revolutionized. I don't know, but the stuff that they did back in the day was really important. And, you know, I look, when I'm looking for something to listen to, I look on Apple Music and what do they recommend? Because I've listened to this, they recommend something else. Lazy, right? And they recommended this new album by Sigismund Kaiken called Solo. I'm a big fan of Sigismund Kaiken. I saw him perform Bach's Sonatas and Partitas for Solo Violin 25 years ago in a church in Tour. It was fascinating. Bach wrote these wonderful works that are you know, just one violin and with polyphony. It's like the cello suites, which are better known, but a higher range. So good old Siggy has a new recording out called Solo, and he's 80 years old, and he plays a variety of instruments. And he plays an instrument called the violoncello de Spala. I'm going to put a link in the show notes with a YouTube video where he's presenting this 10 years ago, before he was going on tour with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. And I want you to picture... I'm not going to show you a picture yet, Doug. I want you to imagine that you're holding a guitar with the body up to your right shoulder and the neck pointing downward in your left hand. There's a strap around the instrument to keep it on your neck, and you're using a bow to play it like this. So that's the violoncello de Spala, and I'll send you the picture later. He doesn't only play that in this recording. He plays violin, viola, clavichord. He plays a piece on clavichord, and... The Violoncello de Spala. So this is a very attractive recording of solo music, much of it by Bach, but several other composers, including, let's see, Diego Ortez, Thomas Balthazar, Carl Friedrich Abel, and Johann Sebastian Bach. So I will link to this on Apple Music. I would not have known about it if not for Apple Music recommending this in new releases. Doug, what have you got? One of my favorite albums, and certainly my favorite album by New Order, is the Substance Collection, Substance 87, or Substance 1987, as it's sometimes called, which is a compilation album of some of their B-sides and some of their dance mixes. And arguably, it is probably their most popular album, as far as I know. And I liked New Order a lot before I actually got my hands on Substance. But after I heard Substance, I said, this is it, because you can take their music and extend it. And I'm like, that was great. And uh, they were just fun to hear, like, new versions of the songs that I already knew. Anyway, late last year, a remix and remastering of Substance was released. And instead of being a double CD, it was a quadruple CD and included a lot more B-sides and a lot more mixes. Now, if you're really into this record, you know all the little details about the producers and which recording was used for the mix and whatnot and this that and the other thing i don't know about any of that all i know is when i put substance on i really like it the way i heard it is that tony wilson the founder of factory records had been collecting these remixes and putting them on cassette and listening to them as he drove around and when he drove the band around one time they said hey what's that you're listening to and he said well it's just a little something of my own that i put together and that's when the band realized hey we got to put this out smart thinking however while I was a good CD owner and ripped the new collection as soon as I got it, I still haven't sat down and listened to it. So I think I'm going to carve out some time this weekend and throw on the four-disc version of Substance. It's my next track. This was episode number 276 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website, 
You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. We hope you'll support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so we depend on the listener support of our Patreon patrons to keep us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, head for Kirk McElhern. Thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.